Hello, welcome. Glad you could join me. I'm your host, Ali A. Alomi. Um, I wanted to start off, as I usually do, and remind everyone that if you're interested in following along, please do so vis-a-vis social media. You can do that by uh, following me on Instagram or Twitter at A-A-O-L-O-M-I and using the hashtag HeadOnHistory. Also, if you're enjoying this podcast so far, feel free to leave a rating and review on iTunes. Um, It would make me most happy, and it also is an opportunity for you to let me know What's working out and what's not. I I definitely will read it and give it a shout out. So let's get started and into the meat of the matter. Last week, we left it off with the election of Ali and the beginnings of what becomes the Muslim civil war that is known as the Fitna. After the death of Uthman, the community falls into crisis. So Omar and Uthman both establish a period of of peace and for several decades the muslim community is united and they focus predominantly on creating the internal structure of what becomes the muslim empire as well as expanding the boundaries to the maghreb north africa and to the iranian highlands but with the death of uthman the community begins to feel the divisions again ali is elected as Khalif, but quite reluctantly so. He rejects it upwards of three times. Now, this is possible that historians talk about Ali's rejection as a way of highlighting his character, and in some ways, it's not too dissimilar from what we see in Shakespeare's Julius Caesar. Julius Caesar rejects the crown, and even though he feels that he deserves to be the leader. So Ali is appointed and elected as Khalif, and right off the bat, he deals with crisis. First, he had the Battle of the Camel, which we discussed last week, so if you haven't heard about it, definitely go and check it out, in which he struggled against, in fact, one of the widows of Muhammad, Aisha, and after settling that particular battle, he goes on to fight yet another one. Remember what Uthman did. When Uthman was Khalif, he appointed a lot of his family members to various positions. And so they became known as, they were known as the Banu Umayyah. Later on, they would become known as the Umayyad dynasty. And this is a structure that Uthman put in place first and foremost. That is, uh, creating a sort of dynastic configuration for the caliphate. Or at least a dynastic quality to those who would become administrators and governors. When Ali became Khalif, he undid that. Ali uh, removed many of Uthman's family members and appointed more qualified candidates instead. Now, this pissed off the Banu Umayyah. They weren't happy with Ali doing this. They felt that they deserved those positions. Many of the Banu Umayyah were part of the elite society of Mecca. They were rich, wealthy traders and merchants, and they felt that they were entitled to the positions that they were appointed to. Ali, on the other hand, was very fixed on a meritocracy. He wanted to appoint only the most pious, only the most trustworthy, and only the most capable of administrators. And so after the Battle of the Camel, the Banu Umayyah rise up against Ali. And so in 657, we have what's known as the Battle of Safin. The Battle of Safin is the gathering of the Umayyad forces. The Banu Umayyad under Muawiyah, Muawiyah was the governor of Syria under Uthman. He was actually appointed by Omar, and he was one of the most powerful members of the Banu Umayyad. 
the Syrian armies, the Arab Syrians in particular, gathered around Muawiyah and the Banu Umayyah. They came together at Safin, where they met the forces of Ali. Ali had moved the caliphate's capital from Medina, from Medina to Kufa, and Kufa was the center of uh, the Arab Iraqis. Now, what's interesting about this configuration is that it mirrors the Byzantine-Sasanian wars that we talked about in our very first episode, the Red Sea Wars, for example. The Iraqi Arabs were all aligned with the previous Sasanian Empire, whereas the Syrian Arabs were aligned with the Byzantine Empire. And so we can see how the tribes who had been divided up by these two old empires once more... Uh, acted on their ancient resentments of sorts, that they were divided less by theological differences, but more so by the geopolitics that they had grown up with. These were tribes that were at war with one another. These were tribes that had fought and were allied with different empires. And under Muhammad and the Rashidun Caliphates, they had been brought together under one new imperial force, that is the Muslim Empire. And so while they were supposed to be united, this was an opportunity or a moment in which those old fractures came up to the surface. And so Ali gathered all his... Uh, Iraqi supporters, his Arab Iraqi supporters, um, from Kufa and marched on Sifin. They met on Sifin on the ba- on the banks of the river in 657, but they were reluctant to engage with one another. Muslims had not gone to war with Muslims before, and while there was the war of apostasy, people who had broken away um, and formed their own alliances and their own uh, religious movements, polit- political and religious movements. Um, That was more about establishing tribute and retaining the unity of the Ummah. This was the first time that the Ummah was really facing one another in war. And so they were reluctant. They were not going to fight. It took three days before a fight finally broke out. It's unclear who struck the first blow, but some believe that it was uh, members of the of Ali's Iraqi forces. And the battle was fierce. The battle was extraordinarily bloody, and they fought and met on the fields of conflict, and Ali came out relatively victorious. He, most historians argue that uh, Ali was very courageous in this moment. The uh, historian Gibbon talks about how Ali actually led the charge himself, that he mounted up on his horse and led the battle charge that broke the Syrian lines, that he was magnanimous in his victory, that he was kind to the dead, that he did not take uh, or mistreat any of the prisoners, but instead offered amnesty and even offered a period of time in which both could bury their dead and give proper funerary rites. But the battle was so horrific that Ibn Hisham writes, Ibn Hisham is one of the early Muslim historians, and we're going to talk a lot about Ibn Hisham later on, but he's one of the sources we use along with Ibn Ishaq uh, to talk about this early Muslim period. But Ibn Hisham writes that the battle was so bloody that both sides stopped fighting. They refused to engage any further. They were horrified by what they saw by the dead bodies. And that there was a particular uh, man whose name was Ibn Lahia. Ibn Lahia actually rode through 
the camps and held out the Quran in front of his horse. Now, some say that they actually held the Quran aloft on their spears, but he pulled forth the Quran and said that we cannot fight anymore, but must allow the book of God to be the final arbiter. In other words, what he was calling for was a truce to allow arbitration. Now, arbitration is a big deal. Arbitration means that both of these sides would have to meet and discuss. Why would Ali meet with Muawiyah's forces even though he was winning? The reality was that even though Ali was winning, morale was low. No one wanted to fight against their brothers. Those old fractures that allowed the fighting to, uh, to align along Iraqi and Syrian lines wasn't enough to overcome the newfound fraternity of the Muslim Ummah. And so people were unwilling to fight any further. Muawiyah himself was in a very weak position, so he was eager to agree to the arbitration. Gibbon writes that Ali actually offered to end the entire conflict by having a duel with Muawi. He said, Muawiyah, we don't need to allow these people to fight on our behalf. Instead, what we can do is meet on the field of conflict in a duel. If I lose, then I will. Uh, you can kill me. And if you lose, I will kill you. That way there will be no further bloodshed, and that will determine the outcome. Now, Muawiyah refused to do that because Muawiyah was quite scared of Ali. Ali had developed a reputation as a fierce warrior. He had a particular sword known as Zulfikar that was a sword that split in two. Um, and so he didn't want to fight him, but he did want the arbitration. And so both sides sent a mediator in order to come up with some solution. Some solution that would deal with this conflict. So even though Ali was in this powerful position, he accepted the agreement to have arbitration. It is recorded in history books that he said, I accepted their proposal so that their desire might be fulfilled. My intentions of accepting the principles of truth and justice and acting according to these principles might become clear and they might have no cause to complain against me. In other words, that Ali was willing to put forth um, his principles. He was willing to act on them. The arbitration met, and there was an agreement that came about. And this agreement was that neither Ali nor Muawiyah would be caliph, that they would both be rejected as caliphs. This was a non-acceptable agreement to Ali, and it was also unacceptable to the rebel forces that had put Ali in power. These rebel forces, known as the Qurara, uh, originally, later become known as the Kharajites. The Kharajites are a particularly interesting group, and so we're going to pause and talk a little bit about them and their role in this arbitration. What they do is the Kharajites are kind of Puritan faction within the early Muslim community. A lot of them come from Egypt, where they had overthrown the Muslim governor there, and they were also involved in the assassination of Uthman when they laid siege to his house. Known as the Qur'ana because they follow the Qur'an in very strict and Puritan ways, they're also known as the Kharajites, they're sectarians of sorts. This group would often argue that you needed to pray so fiercely that you would leave marks on your forehead from when you were making prostrations, that you would have to fast so regularly that your face should be pale from 
uh, lack of food and water. And they have this motto that you would fight as a lion during the day, but live as a monk at night. That is a very austere and Puritan way of approaching Islam that was very different from the sort of moderate yet egalitarian uh, social message of the mainstream Muslims at this point in time. The Harajites believed in a sort of radical egalitarianism. They did not want any hierarchy, and they were militant about it. And one of the reasons that they had opposed Uthman was because he was appointing his family members, that he was creating a sort of aristocracy that they could not abide, that violated the sort of militant egalitarianism that they believed in. And so Ali agreeing to arbitration broke with their principles, even though these rebels put Ali in charge uh, and they helped to elect him, they were also deeply upset with Ali that he even agreed to arbitration. Because for them, agreeing to arbitration means you're taking the judgment out of God's hands. Ali was supposed to have just kept on fighting and trust that God would determine the outcome of things. They were determinists, in other, way, in other words, fatalists. And so the Harajites were very angry with Ali, and they turned on him. So Ali rejects the arbiter's decision, and this puts him in a very weak position. It means that a lot of the Banu Umayya and the tribes that had aligned with the Syrian Muslims were unwilling or now saw Ali in a weak position. Ali also had this internal strife with the Harajites. These people were now rebelling against him, so he was basically fighting a war on two fronts. And so what Ali does is he decides that he needs to take on uh, the Harajites, and in 659, he marches against them. This is a very controversial moment in uh, the history of uh, Muslim society. What happens is that he's able to defeat the Harajites, he's able to finally uh, put an end to them in what is known as the Battle of Nahrawan, but even though he wins the battle, he loses in the long run because he radicalizes the Kharajites even further. The Kharajites end up becoming Ali's fiercest enemy. They go from being his biggest supporter to being his fiercest opponents. And after they're defeated in 659, they go underground and they become a group of radicals that are willing to strike out at people. And so in many ways, we can probably see them as the early precursors of groups like ISIS or Daesh, but with a very different geopolitical context. Um, they were very much committed to a particular Puritan vision of Islam, whereas ISIS is much more a product of neo-colonial and imperial uh, geopolitics in the Middle East. So we'll talk about uh, ISIS in a later episode. But the Kharajites become radicalized even further. And so in 661, it's actually a Kharajite that ends up killing Ali. Abdul Rahman ibn Muljam ends up assassinating Ali. Ali is in Kufa and in prayer. And when he's in prayer, this assassin approaches with his sword that he has dipped in poison and he strikes him down. Why does he kill Ali? Because they believe that Ali betrayed their movement when he agreed to arbitration and in revenge for Ali destroying them in 659. He's only able to attack Ali while Ali's in prayer because Ali was considered a fierce warrior. And so no one wanted to take him on one-on-one. -on -one. They waited until he was uh, preoccupied with prayer and meditation when he was prostrating himself in the traditional Muslim salat 
they killed him. And that was the end of Ali's reign. Ali reigned from 656 to 661. It was one of the uh, shorter-lived caliphs, the shortest being Abu Bakr, who was an old man. And Ali is a somewhat polarizing figure. Some historians consider him a bad caliph because he was unable to maintain the unity of the Muslim ummah. But most historians agree that Ali was an idealist. He was courageous, he was brave, but he had very clear and simple principles that he wanted to live by. One of the things that he did during his reign as Khalif is that he restored the tradition of Abu Bakr, Omar, and even Muhammad in dealing with the treasury. Tribute would flow in in the form of zakat, that is the uh, tax, so to speak, that Muslims pay in the form of jizya, which is the tax that non-Muslims pay, he this would flow in and he would redistribute, redistribute this amongst orphans and widows. And he would do this constantly and regularly. And he had a habit that once the treasury was emptied, he would take a broom and sweep the floor as a symbolic gesture of saying, I have emptied this entire room. He lived very simply. He lived in a small house, first in Medina, then in Kufa. He wore no uh, elaborate garments or ornamentations, lived simply as a humble Muslim. And in many ways, that's how he governed. He tried to govern in an egalitarian fashion, promoting those people who merited promotion and removing any favoritism or nepotism from his government. But that may not have been enough. Though he was an idealist, though he was clearly a very pious man, the geopolitics of the region, specifically the resentment of the Banu Umayyah, worked against him. The Banu Umayyah wanted to keep power. They wanted to ensure that they maintain their privilege, and Ali was a threat to it. With the death of Ali, Muawiyah is named Khalif, and he establishes the first dynastic caliphate known as the Umayyad Caliphate. All right, there's a lot of history in that moment, so let's take a quick break and do a rapid-fire round in order to refresh. What do people think about Muawiyah? Do Sunni and Shia have the same opinion about Ali? Bakharajites seem like bastards. What's their beef? All right, what do people think about Muawiyah? Muawiyah is a controversial figure. On one end, uh, clearly he had support, specifically the Syrian Muslims and the Arab tribes in the Levant. That said, Muawiyah didn't have... Um, isn't viewed particularly positively in in history. Muawiyah is seen as a little bit of a usurper. Um, and it takes a while on a lot of Umayyad propaganda in order to kind of bring about the legitimacy of the Umayyads. And even then, even though Muawiyah establishes this hereditary dynastic caliphate, it doesn't last very long. And there's a lot of tension and resentment towards the Umayyads, and it eventually leads to their downfall. So Muawiyah is a bit of a mixed bag. Most people uh, have mixed feelings about him. The Shia believe he is evil, right? That he's a usurper, that he is a bad man. And the Sunnis kind of reserve judgment and go, you know, he's a bit of a mixed bag. Do the Sunni and the Shia have the same opinion about Ali? Now, it's really important here. The Sunni and Shia, as we come to know them as sort of religious sects, still doesn't exist at this particular time in history. Instead, what you have is people who are supporting Muawiyah and people who are supporting Ali. And the people who are supporting Ali are known as the Shiatul Ali, and they eventually become the Shia. The Sunni perspective 
and the Shia perspective starts during the Umayyad period. You start to see both of them theologically deal with theology and trying to add a religious significance to the history that everyone just experienced, that is the fitna or the civil war. The Sunni perspective eventually becomes known as accepting all four of the Rashidun Khalifs, that is Abu Bakr, Omar, Uthman, and Ali. The Shia, on the other hand, reject the three uh, previous Khalif, Abu Bakr, Omar, and Uthman, and say Ali was supposed to be the rightful successor and is the only legitimate Khalif. The other three are not. But that opinion develops much, much later. At the time of Ali's death, Ali's supporters still accepted the other three Khalifs. They still accepted them as righteous, as rightly guided, as rightful successors of Muhammad. And the opinion changes much later due to the experience under the Umayyads and the sort of crisis that comes about during the third fitna. Kharajites seem like bastards. What's their beef? The Kharajites are super, super Puritan. They're a group of people who believe that the only or who believed, I should say, because they don't really exist anymore, who believed that Islam needed to maintain a sort of militant purity, that because they were exposing, they're being exposed to new experiences in this empire, coming across the Byzantine practices and Sasanian practices, that they needed to maintain the boundaries of what it meant to be Muslim. And so they were very keen on things like the Jezia tax, that is, ensuring that Christians and Jews were separate from Muslims, that uh, Muslims were radically egalitarian, that they were militantly egalitarian, that they didn't have any hierarchy whatsoever. For them, they wanted to preserve the sort of simple Islam, but a really Puritan interpretation of that uh, Islam, and they did so vis-a-vis violence. And so that's why they, they, they come off as particularly bad in history, because they, they are inclined to violence. All right, that's enough for the rapid-fire round. Let's get back to our topic. After the death of Ali, Muawiyah established the Umayyads. Now, Muawiyah is actually the son of Abu Sufyan. Abu Sufyan was one of the chief opponents of Muhammad, during the Muhammad's lifetime, Muhammad had to flee to Medina, and Abu Sufyan was the leader of the Quraysh in Mecca, and he mobilized his forces against Muhammad. He converted to Islam much later when Muhammad retook Mecca, and Muhammad forgave Abu Sufyan his earlier opposition after Abu Sufyan became Muslim. And so the Banu Umayyah and Muawiyah in particular are kind of later converts or later additions to Islam. They come to Islam a lot later than the early companions did, like Ali, who was one of the first converts to Islam. And so a lot of people hold that against the Banu Umayyah in some regards. And Muawiyah's dynastic hereditary caliphate is in many ways a restoration of the sort of Qurayshi hegemony that already existed in Mecca, but taking it now in a sort of global fashion. The Umayyads were aristocratic merchants, and they created a hierarchy in which the Banu Umayyah were at the top and everyone else was at the bottom. Christians and Jews were allowed to continue their religious practices, um, as was Muslim tradition, but they were deemed dhimmis, or uh, protected second-class citizens, and had to pay what is known as the jizya tax. The jizya is a poll tax in which religious minorities pay to the empire in order to continue to have uh, the protections of the state. 
there's a lot of controversy around jizya in particular, like, oh, it's an act of domination. And certainly in many ways, uh, according to our modern sensibilities, there's a lot of things wrong with jizya. It seems like unfair and it creates a structure of inequality. But jizya is actually a very normative practice in the ancient world. It was practiced by Christians. It was practiced by Sasanians. So the Christian Roman Empire um, continued a, an older Roman Empire practice known as the Fisculum Judicae or Isculum Judicae, which was the church which is basically a tax that was levied against the Jewish people. In order for Jews to continue to practice their religion, they had to pay a tax to bishops and to the uh, Roman emperor um, so that they would have religious freedom. Similarly, we find the same thing in the Sasanian Empire, that religious minorities would have to pay some form of tax. Muslims themselves also have to pay a tax. It's known as zakat. It's just a different um, rate than Jezia is. So Jezia is more of a continuation of an ancient practice than it is Muslims enforcing it. And in reality, most of the times Jezia is not enforced, but the Umayyads did. Now the real issue here is that the Umayyads continued to support a particular group of Muslims, and that is themselves, the Banu Umayyah, Arab merchants. Converts to Islam were also treated as second-class citizens, and that they were known as the Muwali. These are usually Persian converts or converts from the Persian world. They were treated as second-class citizens, and though Christians and Jews had their religious freedoms, um, they were not given the same status or protections that they were under the Rashidun Caliphate, and this was a big deal for a lot of Muslims. Abu Sufyan's son, Muawiyah, also moved the capital from, from Medina to Damascus, where his power base was in Syria. And this was another issue for Muslims, is that he's moving away from the heartland of the Prophet's city, of Muhammad's city. All of these reasons led to a great deal of discontent with the Umayyads. The Umayyads maintained their empire for not exactly a hundred years, a little less than a hundred years, from about 661 to 744. But during that time, they were faced with a great deal of discontent from the people. First, what happened is that in 680, you had the second Fetina. Two groups of people rose up against uh, the Umayyads, and that is because after Muawiyah dies, his son takes over, and his son becomes the hereditary leader of the Umayyad dynasty. This was a big, big deal for um, the Muslim community. They hadn't had a hereditary leadership. For Muawiyah to pass on the caliphate to Yazid I, Yazid being his son, uh, was a break with tradition. Muslims either elected their caliphs or they were appointed vis-a-vis -vis counsel and consultation. And yet here we had the first true dynastic succession of the caliphate. And so there was a rebellion. And this is known as the Second Fitna or the Second Civil War. Uh, you had two groups of people rise up against Yazid. First, you had uh, the followers of Ali, the Shiatul Ali in Iraq, specifically in Kufa, who rallied around Hussein ibn Ali. Hussein was the son of Ali and the grandson of Muhammad. And Yazid sent out his troops to cut him off before he even managed to rally his forces. Um, they even cut him off from water supplies, so he couldn't actually get to the Euphrates in order to find water. They were surrounded on all sides, the Shiatul Ali, and Yazid um, massacred them. It was considered, it's considered by Sunnis and Shias both as one of the worst massacres in Muslim history. Uh, 
Hussein himself fought quite fiercely. Like his father before him, he demanded one-on-one -on -one combat. And so the Umayyads uh, obliged him. But every man they kept sending against Hussein would be cut down. And so Hussein defeated man after man after man until he alone was left surrounded on all sides. They attacked him and injured him quite horribly. And Hussein's tribe, the Banu Hashem, that is the, the, the tribe and family of Muhammad, rallied to him. But unfortunately, they were all killed. Uh, even Hussein's uh, grandson and child, whom, who, was a, who was a baby at the time, was massacred at the time, or uh, massacred in that event. And that brought an end to, uh, to uh, Muhammad's male descendants. And that was the, the moment in which the Shiat al-Ali really break with the rest of the Muslim community. The, this act by Yazid was considered a horrible atrocity. And so the Shiatul Ali transformed from a political position, that is, support for Ali, to a theological position. And what happens is that the sort of rebellion against Muawiyah is transformed and turned into um, an internal theology. So in 680, during the second fitna, when what is known as the Battle of Karbala, the Battle of Karbala and the defeat of Hussein is reimagined in theological terms and commemorated by Shia on Muharram, which is a specific uh, holy day in which they mourn the death of the Prophet's descendants and the righteous leaders of the community. And what happens is in this particular moment, this adding religious significance to a battle and a political position creates the Shia sect. Shiism becomes about uh, the Imam, that is the religious leaders, connection to Muhammad. And that connection to Muhammad providing a unique prophetic insight into the Quran. So it is believed that Ali wrote down a lot of the Quranic verses because he was one of the earliest converts. And because he wrote down a lot of these, those verses, he has a unique insight because of his family connection and his connection to prophecy into what those verses mean. So the Shiatul Islam, so the Shiism of Islam argues that the Imam, that is those that are the descendants of Ali, those who have the connections to prophecy, are not only the righteous leaders and the rightful leaders of the community, but they have some form of prophetic insight, spiritual insight into what the Quran truly means. And we're going to see how Shiism really develops, but it's in this moment, this battle of Karbala and the death of Hussein, where we see a full break and a transformation from uh, lead from a rebellion against the Umayyads into an internalization of that conflict and a uh, creation of a theology that becomes Shiism. That doesn't mean that the Sunnis were the supporters of Yazid, not at all. The Sunnis also go through a quietist um, transformation during this time, horrified by the treatment of uh, Yazid, the treatment of Yazid against the Shiatul Ali, horrified at the death of Hussein, horrified at the death of the Banu Hashim, and really taken aback by the hierarchical uh, structure of the Umayyads, feeling as if the Umayyads were creating a culture that was antithetical 
to the kind of radical Puritan egalitarian message of the Quran and Muhammad, the Sunnis say, well, we're not going to follow the Umayyads. We're not going to rebel against them. Instead, what we're going to do is we're going to try to follow the example of Muhammad to the best of our abilities. And this is where the term Sunni actually comes from. Shiatul Ali just means the party of Ali. The Sunni are the people who follow the Sunnah of Muhammad. Sunnah meaning example. So what they do is they start to catalog all the various sayings and acts of Muhammad and try to emulate them. This is the difference between the Sunni and the Shia. The Shia believe in proximity to Muhammad vis-a-vis lineage. That is, you can get close to prophecy and understanding the Quran by the lineage of Muhammad himself. The Sunni believe that you can gain proximity to Muhammad and prophecy vis-a-vis emulation. That is, by emulating the Prophet, following his practices, doing as he did, living as he did, you can come closer to him. And this becomes the two main theological stances within Islam. Both of them shaped by a historical experience, and that is the rejection of the Umayyads. One, a complete and total rejection of the Umayyads in a turn inwards, produces both Sunnism and Shiism. Both of them agree on the major tenets of Islam, but start to view the connection to Muhammad in different ways, one through emulation and the other through um, lineage. Now, there's also another group of people that rebelled against Yazid, and that is Ibn al-Zubair. You may remember Ibn al-Zubair from previous episodes. He was a Shiatul Ali, he supported Ali, and he set up base in Mecca. And he was the second group that fought against the Umayyads. Now, Yazid never got a chance to actually defeat Ibn al-Zubair. Yazid dies, and it falls onto the shoulders of Abdul Malik. Now, with Mecca in control of under the control of Ibn Zubair, that meant that symbolically, Ibn al-Zubair had the heart of the Islamic world. That he had the heart of the pilgrimage. Muslims around this new empire would have to travel to Mecca and therefore go into the territories of Ibn al-Zubair. And so Abdul Khalif Abdul Malik of the Umayyads does something quite interesting. He starts to promote Jerusalem. Now, you remember Jerusalem, or what is known as Al-Quds, from when we talked about Omar. Omar was one of the first of the Khalifs to recognize the significance of Jerusalem. Muhammad had mentioned Jerusalem in his uh, spiritual message. It was originally the first Qibla of of the Muslims. That means Muslims prayed in the direction of Jerusalem until that direction changed to Mecca. But Jerusalem was an important holy site for Muslims. It was the site of the prophets of old, of Moses and of Abraham. And so Jerusalem was important, but not nearly as important as Mecca or Medina. But Khalif Abdul Malik does something interesting. He starts to promote Jerusalem as equally important to Mecca and tells the pilgrims, no, 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 don't go to Mecca, go to Jerusalem, because Jerusalem was under his control, whereas Mecca was Ibn al-Zubair's, under Ibn al-Zubair's control. So it's at this moment in history, in this conflict of the second fitna in 685, that we start to see why Jerusalem captures the popular imagination of Muslims and how it remains an important holy site. But it's actually a result of this conflict in the second fitna. Eventually, uh, Abdul Malik is able to defeat Ibn al-Zubair. And what happens is his troops start to abandon him and he's surrounded on all sides and he is demanded that he uh, relinquish himself to Abdul Malik and he asks his mother he goes mom should I 
give myself up. I know that they will kill me, but I fear that they will desecrate my body. And his mother gives him a very honest answer. I fear that they will do this as well, but know that your soul goes to God. And so Ibn al-Zubair gives himself over to Khalif, to Khalif Abdul Malik, who puts him in chains. They execute him and they do desecrate the body. Um, again, another act of atrocity by the Umayyads. The Umayyads maintain their power for several years after this. The fitnas are done. They establish some sense of normalcy. They become the kind of ruling elite, but discontent never fully goes away. And rather than people openly rebelling against the Umayyads, they turn to theology. They turn inwards. And it's both Sunnism and Shiism can be seen as a sort of rebellion against the Umayyads, a rejection of the Umayyad Caliphate, and a return to what they're trying to do is to capture a sort of pure vision of Islam, either by trying to uh, preserve his lineage or by emulating Muhammad. Eventually, the Umayyads are overthrown, and we're going to talk about that in our next episode. Just know that the Umayyads maintain their empire for several decades after the Fitna, that they are much more aligned with the previous Byzantine Empire. They continue a lot of the Byzantine practices. This is also the first time that we see forced veiling up until this point. Uh, the concept of a hijab or a veil is not prevalent amongst Muslims, but Muslims are a minority population in these regions, specifically the Levant, who had just recently been conquered by the Muslims. So there was a large population of Christians and a small minority of Muslims. And so the Umayyads, in order to maintain a sort of social hierarchy, enforced the hijab. The hijab was also common practice amongst Byzantine Christians. The veiling of women was an act of social hierarchy, that women who were elites would wear some form of headscarf or a veil to demarcate themselves as different from ordinary rabbles. Indeed, under the Umayyads, it was very clear that lower class women and slaves were not allowed to wear head veils or scarves because they were of a different social strata and only elite women were able to do so. So the Umayyads continue a lot of these Byzantine practices. We also see the evidence of this in Umayyad coins. If you were to go and Google an Umayyad coin today, you would actually see that they're Byzantine and Sasanian coins, which they've scratched out the name of the Roman emperor or the Persian emperor and wrote the name of the Umayyad. Khalif. We're going to end it there with the Umayyads and the society that they have established, one that is hierarchical, one that is aristocratic, one that is merchant-based, one that supports the Banu Umayya, um, and how this really shaped Islam as a religion by producing a rejection of the Umayyads that gives us Sunnism and Shiism. Next week, we're going to talk about the fall of the Umayyads and the rise of the Abbasids and how this continues to shape the intellectual and religious traditions of Islam. I'm going to end today with a few book recommendations, as I usually do. The first book that I'm going to recommend is by a guy named G.R. Houting, and he writes a book called The First Dynasty of Islam, the Umayyad Caliphate, A.D. 661 to 750. It's a really good book. It's um, a little bit of an older book, but it was considered by many the kind of definitive book on the Umayyads. It tells you right up until um, the fall of the Umayyads. It's a really, really good book to understanding how the Umayyads came about, the society that they really created, and why they eventually fall apart. Uh, there's a re-up of a previous book. Last week I talked about Hugh Kennedy's. I've given him 
two recommendations. Now I'm going to recommend Patrick Crone's book, yet again, God's Khalif, Religious Authority in the First Centuries of Islam. It's a really good book. Uh, she's a bit of a revisionist historian, but uh, does talk about the actual authority of the Caliphate, which changes over uh, the different dynasties, and we're going to talk a little bit about that next week. Um, finally, you can talk, uh, I would recommend Amira Benson's book, The Great Caliphs, The Golden Age of the Abbasid Empire. Um, the beginning portion of that really talks about how the Umayyads fall, and we're going to talk about that book a little bit more next week. Anyways, that is all for now. Thank you for tuning in. I hope you are enjoying this podcast, and remember, stay smart, beautiful nerds. Mm-hmm.